Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of the Accidental Tomatoes podcast. I'm your host, Joe Webb, and this is a podcast for spiritual exiles, for all of us who are looking for spiritual meaning beyond the walls and fences of institutional Christianity. So today I want to do just a little bit of deconstruction around this whole concept of of what we call salvation. So this is going to be a fairly short episode, but I I think maybe it's got some, um, some content that's worth considering and maybe worth having some conversations over. But before I get too deep into talking about salvation itself, I want to set a little context to help us see just how thoroughly and how holistically we probably should be viewing the concept of salvation. So for the past several weeks, we have been having some really interesting conversations in our new wineskins community during a summer series that we've been calling Sin, Holiness, and the Anthropocene. Now, I'm going to get to unpacking that in just a second here. But the gist of the series is to examine how human influence over natural systems mirrors and sometimes even extends to the ways that we influence and affect one another. So by way of definition, the Anthropocene is the name that many folks in the scientific community are using to refer to the current geologic age in which we live where human impact on the planet has altered the environment and environmental systems themselves. And while climate change might be the most like glaring example of that impact at the moment, there are innumerable other effects, both large and small, that humanity has on natural systems. Now, depending on who you talk to or what you read, the Anthropocene era is largely seen to have begun sometime between the beginning of the Industrial Revolution in the late 19th and into the early early 20th century um, to as recently as the 1950s when human-induced climate impacts began to be measured and studied. But I think we'd be hard-pressed to find any time when human beings have dwelt on Earth that we didn't have some kind of influence over natural processes. Certainly, even early hunter-gatherer peoples learned how they could manipulate both the flora and the fauna of the land to their advantage. Now, just a quick aside before I get too deep down this particular rabbit hole, it is patently ridiculous for people to claim that the climate crisis that we're currently experiencing is nothing more than a natural phenomenon. The lesson of the Anthropocene is that there is no longer any such thing as a purely natural phenomenon. Literally everything that happens on planet Earth is influenced in some way by humanity's presence upon it. But let me get back to the point. For at least the past few generations, going going back, I don't know, at least to the beginning of the, the fundamentalist Christian movement, that began roughly around the same time as the Industrial Revolution, large segments of Christianity have viewed themselves as separate and apart from the natural world with a mandate to subdue the world for human benefit. Now, a lot of that probably has to do with a poor and frankly lazy interpretation of the word dominion 
as it appears in many English translations of the Hebrew book of Genesis, referring to God's instructions to the first humans. So-called biblical literalists and inerrantists have used that word as an excuse to exploit the planet for human gain. An idea which, by the way, marries very nicely with unchecked capitalism. But that might be a topic for another podcast. But a more accurate translation of the original Hebrew in that early verse in Genesis that tells humanity to have dominion over the planet, uh, a, a real, a better translation reveals that the original intent of the word that gets translated to dominion really means something more like caring for the creation. Robert Alter, in his excellent commentary on the Hebrew Bible, uses the, the rather poetic term, I think, to hold sway over the land and the creation. And while both of those translations still imply human influence, it's a far cry from the kind of misuse and manipulation of the earth and its resources that has resulted in the need to even coin a term like Anthropocene to define it. Even if you don't hold to religious creation myths, it seems fairly obvious that we have so altered the original relationship between humans and the environment that something simply has to give. So, what does all of this have to do with the idea of salvation? I'm glad you asked. Right? <laughs> I say all of this about the Anthropocene and about the relationship between humanity and the planet to point out how our current phase of evolution as a species can largely be defined by exploitation. Not just exploitation of the earth and its resources, but also exploitation of one another, of the exploitation of human beings by other human beings. Which brings us back to the way we define certain words. In much the same way that fundamentalist Christianity has viewed humans as having, quote, dominion over the earth in order to exploit it for our own gain, evangelical streams of the Christian faith have also viewed salvation as a cudgel with which to beat non-Christians into submission. For them, salvation has come to mean believing that Jesus lived and died for our individual so-called sins so that we can go to heaven when we die. In fact, salvation for them has been so tangled up with the afterlife that it's really difficult, honestly, for most modern Christians to even conceive that it might mean something else. But early Jewish people, first century Jewish people, and just a reminder, Jesus was one of them, um, and all of those people who were the first followers of Jesus would have had no frame of reference for that kind of definition of salvation, and especially not for the individualistic aspects of it. For them, the Hebrew word that gets translated to salvation in English has more to do with the restoration of wholeness, both for people and for the land in general. I think a better synonym in modern English might be liberation, which makes a lot of sense, honestly, when you consider that most of the oral traditions that now comprise the Hebrew scriptures began to be recorded in writing during the periods of Jewish exile in the 6th and 7th centuries BCE. 
And so when we view salvation through the lens of liberation, we see a couple of important things. First of all, there was nothing individualistic about salvation as Jesus and his peers would have understood it. Salvation was always for the whole, not merely for the one. Secondly, when we read of Jesus talking with his followers about being saved, he's not talking about some post-mortem disposition of their individual disembodied souls. He's talking about being set free from the social and cultural and political and economic forces that keep them from enjoying the fullness of the human experience. It's the language that Jesus would use for that, by the way, was life abundant, right? By the way, that also extends to liberation for the exploiter as well as for the exploited. Now, what we think of, you know, in, in evangelical terms is this idea of having a personal relationship with God cannot on its own save us. It's only when we understand that a relationship with God, whatever or whoever we believe God to be, it's only when we understand that relationship as innately also being a relationship with everyone and everything else that we could be saved, so to speak. To the extent that salvation is personal, it's only individual in so much as we are each a part of a greater whole that is in the process of being saved. And while Jesus clearly does advocate for people having some kind of a relationship with God, even though that specific language may not be found anywhere um, in the New Testament, what Jesus is really talking about is for the people as a whole to have that kind of relationship with God. It's a call for people to be of one heart and of one mind toward God and toward one another. Only then can humanity itself be truly liberated. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, there was a British philosopher and Christian apologist named G.K. Chesterton. And one of the quotes that gets credited to Chesterton a lot is, is this one, and it's that the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. Now, evangelicals love to use this quote to manipulate people into their belief system. But I think Chesterson, Chesterton, excuse me, might have been on to something even more profound. When viewed through a liberationist lens, the Christian ideal that has been found most difficult and left most untried is the ideal of full equality and full inclusion for all people and for the elimination of social and political and economic systems that exploit and oppress some humans for the express benefit and profit of others. Now, all of this, of course, requires a massive paradigm shift, especially for those who have for so long bought into the evangelical notion that the main point of the whole Jesus project is what happens to us after we die. But it's also a big shift for those of us who benefit from those systems and structures. As a 60-year-old white male, I have to admit that capitalism has worked pretty well for me, at least insofar as my comfort and convenience are concerned. Admittedly, it's difficult to untangle ourselves 
from these kinds of systems and structures, which, by the way, is what the Pauline epistles refer to as powers and principalities. The more any of us benefit from a particular system, the more difficult it is for us to see how that benefit comes at the expense, either directly or indirectly, of someone else. And the harder it is for us to do the work of dismantling those systems and structures, those powers and principalities. But if we're to take Jesus seriously, we must also take his call to liberation seriously. And we must be willing to take the risk that what Jesus teaches, while it might be costly in some ways to those who have enjoyed privilege within our current systems, is really the best thing for humanity as a whole. And so to get back to life in the Anthropocene, when we dismantle those systems that harm other people, we must simultaneously dismantle the ways we exploit the planet itself. We can't just go pick new sacrifice zones, downwind of new power plants, or downhill from new mountaintop removal sites. Exploitation of the planet and exploitation of its inhabitants go hand in hand. The Anglican priest Cynthia Bourgeau, who is an emeritus teacher at Richard Rohr's Center for Action and Contemplation, says that part of the problem is that humans as a species are just not very mature yet. Father Richard himself has said in several interviews that I've heard that we are collectively much closer to petulant teenagers than we are to mature rational adults. Again, speaking of us largely collectively as a species. And I think I agree with that. And I think one of the places where our growth is most stunted, sadly, is in the Christian church, where we so often peddle a message that simply supports the status quo with religious sounding language and a pie in the sky when you die gospel, rather than challenging systemic exploitation the way that Jesus does. I I love this quote from uh, my friend and colleague and and occasional co-host, Brad Davis, Brad posted the other day, Satan isn't some red pitchfork-wielding devil obsessed with making your life hell or dragging your soul to it. Satan is the system in which we live. Satan is the structures that uphold this death-dealing system obsessed with perpetuating hell on earth in the name of power and greed. When Jesus says to us, come, follow me, It is God's invitation to extricate ourselves from that system of evil, injustice, and oppression and live differently, to reject and resist the satanic forces of power and greed. Brad has a way with words with with the holler gospel there, doesn't he? But that's salvation, right? Extricating ourselves from the systems of evil, injustice, and oppression and resisting the forces of power and greed. It's it's just time we grew up, y'all. It's time for the church to quit playing around at saving souls and to do the work of resistance that is necessary for liberation. Well, that's it for this episode. Again, I know it was kind of a short one, um, but I've just, that's been rattling around in my head for a while and I kind of wanted to get that out into the world. Um, I hope you are somehow inspired maybe by this. Maybe you're a little bit challenged um, by all of it. 
Um, but I think it's only when we really start to question our assumptions that we really begin the true work of growing and maturing. And to me, that's what deconstruction is really all about. As always, you can find all of the content that we're creating for our community on our website, accidentaltomatoes.com. You can also find us on social media just by doing a search for Accidental Tomatoes. Please reach out to us there if you got something you'd like to say about this episode or if there's a conversation you'd like to engage in. Or you can always email us at accidentaltomatoes at gmail.com. And if you enjoy our podcast, please give us um, a rating and a review on whatever streaming service that you listen to us on. We really, really appreciate that. Thanks again for listening, friends. And until next time, keep on growing outside the fences. And join us again for another brand new episode of the Accidental Tomatoes Podcast.